The scripture reading for this afternoon is from Mark 14, 1 through 11. So please open up your Bibles to Mark 14, 1 through 11. I took a peek at the Pew Bibles, and it's page 1063 in the Bibles in the Pew if you need one. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him, for they were saying, Not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leopard, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking one to another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of this morning's, oh man, the title of the sermon today is uh, The Value of Christ. And Bill, thank you for those songs um, that, that, that's the, I, hope, I, I hope you heard the, the theme there um, in our songs was the value of Christ, the worth of Christ. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, would, would this be the truth that rings forth in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions as we desire to obey you? Would we see you as the supreme Uh, treasure that you are, as this woman did, as we will see in this text. Lord, help us um, discern those things in our life where we um, have not counted the cost and the worth of Christ as we pursue the things of this world, as we obey your commandments. Lord, would you give us strength to do that? Would you open our minds and our eyes and hearts to hear from your word this morning, from this glorious work, this good work, Uh, that you said this woman did to you um, as um, Christ made his way uh, to the cross to pay for our sins. Would you glorify your son in your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned this to a few of you already, but the Lord in his providence arranged that I would be preaching on Jesus' anointing at Bethany, uh, here at Bethany Covenant Church. Uh, for those that have been here for the last couple of years, uh, when I've been asked to fill the pulpit, I have uh, been working through the Gospel of Mark in a unique way. 
We've been going through the Gospel of Mark with a particular focus on the points in the Gospel where he focuses in on essential truths of the Gospel and what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. Scholars have called these sections of Mark's Gospel sandwiches, very fancy term. And we've come to the fifth sandwich in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and it is where Jesus is anointed at Bethany in the final week leading up to to his betrayal and crucifixion. This is a, a crucial point in the Gospel of Mark because the narrative slows down. The tension rises and the earthly purpose of Jesus is on full display as he is betrayed, denied by his closest followers, he's put on trial by the religious leaders and the political leaders, he is mocked beaten and killed as one who was completely innocent, which he told his disciples would happen. And I've mentioned this before in my previous sermons um, on these sandwiches, but the Gospel of Mark seeks to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. This is how the book opens in chapter 1, verse 1. It is the confession of the demons in Mark chapter 5. Jesus' confession of himself in Mark chapter 14, verse, uh, verse 61. I'm sorry, uh, Mark chapter 5. Uh, Jesus also then, it, uh, this is his confession of himself in Mark chapter 14, where he identifies himself not only as the Son of God, but as the Christ and as the Son of Man. And then finally, in Mark 15, as the book closes, as Jesus breathes his last breath, a Roman centurion soldier makes this confession as well. Mark desires his readers to not only hear the truth of this confession, but that they too would make this confession. We must remember that this confession is unto salvation. The demons knew who Christ was. This is a confession unto salvation. That Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was. But Mark desires that we not only make the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, but that our lives would match that confession. Moreover, that our confession would, would lead to a life of following Jesus. And Mark does not paint a comfortable picture for those that would choose to follow Christ. In Mark chapter 8, uh, disciples are called to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. If we seek to be our own saviors and refuse the saving work of Christ on the cross, we will be rejected by the Father on the day of judgment. This is what Mark says. The Gospels, all of them say it. And if we try to find any other way of saving our lives, we will lose it. If we look for eternal life in another place, then in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will not have it. And if we refuse to deny ourselves and the passions of our flesh as we pursue Christ, we will perish. So what it means to follow the Son of God is is one of the overarching themes of the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants us to see the glory of the Son of God. He wants us to repent and believe the Gospel. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it's only a few verses after this gospel call that Jesus starts calling disciples unto himself. Jesus, the Son of God, 
The Christ, the Son of Man, is calling all men unto himself. All will make this confession. All will submit to this truth. Mark desires that you see Jesus as the one true Savior, the suffering servant who took the punishment for your sins and offers eternal life for all of those who would repent and believe the gospel. The gospel of Mark proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God and calls everyone to respond to this truth. Those that respond in faith will live a life that is obedient to Christ, even if it costs them their, even if it costs them their life. We saw this when we looked in Mark chapter 6, when Mark inserts the death of John the Baptist as he's sending out um, his disciples into the mission field. Mark sandwiches the cost of discipleship as uh, Uh, John the Baptist was that forerunner for the gospel, and it costs him his life, a faithful follower of Christ. The disciples were rejoicing when they came back from all their successful ministry because they were successful. But Mark, as we saw in the sandwich, and Jesus want his followers to know that following Jesus could cost them even their physical life. So as we move into the text, I want to open with a pointed question that I believe hits at the heart of this passage. What is Christ worth to you? Consider this for a moment. What is Christ worth to you? Let me ask it another way. This quote comes from um, Piper's book, God is the Gospel in in the introduction. If you could have heaven with no sickness... And with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical um, uh, disasters gone, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ was not there? Every time I read this quote, it certainly cuts me to the heart. It's only when we truly understand the value of Christ, that everything else in life can take its rightful place. It's only when we rightly see the value of Christ that everything else receives its proper value. And your ability to defeat sin in your life comes down to your answer to this question. Your desire to share the gospel comes down to this question. What is Christ worth to you? We have felt and experienced the inflation of our economy over these last uh, few years. In the economy of Christ, when other things or people are valued more than Christ, that economy will collapse. Many of us worry about the economy, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't act wisely in these days around these conditions, but you should be more worried about the economy that's in your heart. What do you value most right now? What is that thing that all other things find their value? Is there anyone or anything other than Christ in your personal economy? If it's not Christ, your your economy will be inflating and it will soon break. Is taking hold of Christ in your life your current aim? Is it your goal to love, know, and experience Christ above everything else. And as we dig into our passage, we're, uh, we're going to see how this is modeled perfectly by the woman with the ointment. 
Our passage begins with the chief priests and the scribes finding a way to seize Jesus quietly with the purpose of putting him to death. We see this in verse 1 of, our, of, of chapter 14. The conscience of the scribes, the consciences of the scribes did not flinch at premeditated murder. They were more concerned about the response of the people. And now before we move on from the opening verse, verse 2, we are hit with some immediate application for the disciple of Jesus. Are you more concerned about your testimony and allegiance to Christ or how people will respond to your faith when it is proclaimed? Fear of man is something that we all struggle with and it can cause us to do sinful things. It will cause us to value the wrong things. It will cause us to obey that which we should not obey. Some of you in this congregation are struggling with how to handle pronouns in the workplace. Some of you in this congregation are afraid of the response of your family if you were to challenge them on the taboo topics of our culture right now, like abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism. Some of you might even fear the response of your brother or sister in Christ if you were to lovingly and gently reveal a blind spot in their life. So fear of man is certainly something all of us struggle with in varying degrees and in a variety of different contexts. This text provides the strength we need to stand boldly in the face of critiques and the enemies of the gospel and be able to say like Christ did in John 6, 34, I say these things so that you might be saved. The scribes had fallen into a deadly ditch, fearing man over fearing God. They were not interested in the truth. They were not interested in repenting and believing the gospel. They were not interested in confessing that Jesus was the Son of God. They were interested in their own agenda, their own pride, their own glory, their own political and theological distinctives. They were interested in challenging Christ and killing Christ instead of submitting and obeying Christ. And those that desire to silence Christ will themselves have their mouths stopped on the day of judgment. That's Psalm 2. So if you're struggling with the fear of man, this, mo- this passage models how we can begin putting that fear to death. And we will see clearly when we see what this woman did to Jesus with the ointment in verse 3 here. And so this brings me to the main point of the passage one point, some subpoints, but one main point. Christ must be the most valuable thing in your life now if you are to live a fruitful life and have eternal life. Let me say that again. Christ must be the most valuable thing now if you are going to enjoy him forever. I'm going to come back to this application on the fear of man here in, in a little bit. But what in your life do you value most? Is it your family? Is it your safety? Is it your possessions? Is it your status at work or in your family? Is it what others think about you? Is it your pride and what you think about yourself? Is it your credentials? Verses 1 and 2 make up the first section of this text. 
And as we've come to expect, Mark will finish this narrative about the plot against Christ after he, um, he brings in the story of the woman. So as the chief priests are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, we have a woman that desires to pour on Jesus something of outrageous value to display her love, devotion, and faith in Christ. So look at uh, verse 3 with me. Let me just read that one more time. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly piernard, and she broke the jar and poured it over his head. So Mark puts a pause in the plot to kill Jesus, but that'll be picked back up in verses 10 and 11. So let's set the scene here of this woman entering and doing this to Jesus. We're at, we're at the home of Simon, a home called uh, the home of Simon the leper. Jesus and his disciples are reclining at the table, and we're told in John's account of this scene that Mary was the name of this woman in Mark, who Mark leaves nameless. We're also told that Lazarus was at the table in the Gospel of John, and Martha was serving. Simon's home was in Bethany. When Jesus was in and around Jerusalem, Bethany was a regular place of ministry and fellowship. We saw this in Mark chapter 11. After he entered Jerusalem, he retreats to Bethany. This was the story of the withered fig tree. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, according to John 11, verse 8. Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And according to Luke 2450, this is a new detail for me this week, Jesus was near Bethany when he ascended into heaven. Bethany was a home base for Jesus during his ministry in and around Jerusalem, especially during the week leading up to his death and resurrection. So Bethany was a special place for Jesus. But in our text, several profound things happen in our text. As we will see what this woman does will be part of, of the gospel message as it goes forth into the world. What this woman does will be a part of the gospel message going forward into the world. Jesus does not want us to miss what this woman has in her heart and her actions towards him. So much he desires her actions to be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. So I just read verse 3. Here in verse 3 we get the description of what this woman does to Jesus. And it's not until Jesus provides the interpretation anointing for this in verse 8 that it becomes more clear what this woman is doing. So there's two things we need to notice about this perfume and this woman's anointing of Jesus. The first, this was a costly jar of perfume. We're told in verse 5 that this jar could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Some of you might have a nice little conversion uh, footnote there in your Bibles. But a denarii was what we might call minimum wage for a day's worth of work. The value of this jar of perfume was valued at 300 days of labor. Or in other words, a man's yearly salary. Think about that for a minute. What do you take home each year for your work? This is a great value. What sort of security would this, would this jar of uh, perfume be for this woman in hard times? 
Some commentators suggest this could have been a family heirloom that had been passed along for generations. Given the response of some of the disciples, this was a wasteful act. Because so much good have, could have come from giving it to the poor or those in need. So just to give you a sense of the amount of food that 300 denarii could buy, the Bible helps us with math and perspective here. Mark chapter 6, verse 37 says that when Jesus desired the disciples to feed the 5,000, which was probably just the count, the count of men, according to Matthew, it would cost 200 denarii to feed 500 people, men and their families, not counting the women and the children. So think about that. 200 denarii buys enough food for somewhere between five to 10,000 people. That's what's in this jar. This woman took an amount of perfume, if sold, could have fed that many people. I'm trying to get, give a perspective to how the disciples respond to this. This ointment had a large amount of value, which is why the disciples were so indignant about how the woman managed this perfume. We should also notice what this woman did with the jar that held the perfume. She didn't just pop the top off and take out a little bit and anoint Jesus. She broke the jar and poured it over his head. As if she was saying there would never be a more proper time to, ever, to use every last drop of this perfume and costly ointment than on the head of Christ. The charge from the disciples in verse 4 was that she wasted the perfume. The literal word here is destroyed or ruined. The disciples were convinced that this woman's behavior ruined the perfume and did not carefully consider how to, be, how to steward that resource to manage that perfume, which was such a massive asset. Now, before we stand behind Christ and point our fingers at the disciples for their rough treatment of this woman and convince ourselves that we would be the ones that would have seen what Christ saw in this woman's heart. Consider how you look at other Christians that make unwise decisions as they seek to honor the Lord. I was reminded of C.T. Studd, the missionary uh, that we watched the documentary on this, this summer, um, who gave away his huge inheritance for the support of the gospel ministry. Do you think there was anyone in his family that had said to him, what about the needs of your family here on earth? Why did you give it there and not to them? How do you, do you know how much that inheritance could have, CT, do you know how much that inheritance could have been if you had just saved it for a little bit longer and let it grow in a savings account? Two of my favorite quotes from him that match the heart of this woman here in our text C.T. says on two, two of his quotes here, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So I mentioned this briefly above, but we can't miss that she poured all of it out on Jesus. Every last drop. In her mind, there would not be a better use than on Christ. And in John's account of this anointing, it mentions that this woman began wiping his feet with her hair. Think about the amount of ointment that would be. 
Now we're told by Jesus in verse 8 that she anointed him for burial. To anoint for burial was something that you did after they died to mask the odor and the smell of the decaying body. This is what the women were coming to the grave to do after Jesus was dead. Not this woman. This woman anoints him for burial while he is still alive. Think about what this woman is communicating in her behavior with this perfume. And there's three things about this behavior that reveal what was going on in her heart and what she believed about Christ. First and foremost, she was not going to need ointment for his body because he was going to rise from the dead. The woman believed Jesus' prophecy that he would die and rise again. This woman believed that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And as I have mentioned, Lazarus was at the table. This woman was in the presence of the very man that Jesus rose from the grave. And if Jesus could raise others, he could certainly raise himself. We saw this in John chapter 5 that Jesus has life in himself and he gives life. This woman believed that there would be no need for burial ointment because the suffering servant would see no decay, according to Psalm 16, verse 10, which is quoted several times in Acts, pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection. There would no, be no need for burial, burial ointment for Christ. She's also communicating, this number two here, of her behaviors here, what's going on in her heart and the faith that she was exhibiting with this perfume. She was communicating in her behavior that nothing was more valuable to her than Christ. She was not trusting in the value of that ointment for security or what it meant to the family or how much she could get for it if she sold it. She took what was most valuable to her and poured it on Christ. Her posture was that nothing could be wasted on Christ. The woman desired to display not only her unwavering faith in Jesus' death and resurrection and what that would mean for her and her sins, but everything else, she wanted to use all that she had to honor and glorify Christ. Point of application here. Is this how we think of our stuff? Is this how we spend our money? Is this how we spend our time? Is it your desire to honor Christ in all that you do? Is your life a living sacrifice to God? What is that one thing in your life that is holding you back from fully devoting yourself to Christ? That one thing has come to mind, write it down. Talk with somebody about it, even today. Get accountability for it. What are you holding on to in this life more than Christ? What are you trusting in that if it were taken, your identity would be gone? This woman desired to display the worth of Christ by showing that even wasting costly perfume on Christ is no waste at all. In fact, she, should be, she would be wasting her life if she had not wasted, this is the irony, she would be wasting her life if she had not wasted this perfume on Christ. As C.T. Studd said, only what is done for Christ will last. 
So in her mind, she would um, have been wasting this perfume if she had not poured all of it out on Christ. She had decided in her heart that there was no other purpose for this perfume than to proclaim to Christ his worth to her by emptying the whole jar on him. This was a bold and glorious thing that she did that Christ ensured her model here of faith in this anointing would be part of the gospel message forever. So Christian, what are you holding back from God? As this woman models to us a life sold out to Christ and proclaiming his value to everyone around, what has God entrusted to you that you are not stewarding for his glory and his kingdom? This could be your tithes, but this could be your time. This could be the gifts that God has given you to serve as church. Everything that we have belongs to God, and we have been entrusted with these things so that we might bless others and advance his kingdom. If there are some among us here that have yet to see the worth of Christ, the behavior of this woman rightly uh, might seem ex- extremely careless and unwise. Certainly there was a better use for this perfume. Or did she really have to use all of it? What would her mom think or her grandma think if they knew that which they passed down to her would be used in this way? Until you can see the value of Christ, casting that which is most valuable to you at the feet of Christ is wasteful. The meditation verse this morning was Philippians 3, 7 and 8, which says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, but count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Until we have gained Christ, we can't understand this woman's behavior. So as we finished our summer focus on missions, the world cannot understand why someone would leave their home, put their family in danger for the sake of the gospel and discipling the nations. The world cannot make sense of saying no to a promotion at work because it it would impact your ability to serve your family, church, and community. The world can't make sense of a family giving more money to the cause of Christ than their savings account for a bigger barn. The world cannot make sense of a man or a woman who loses everything, yet proclaims, all I need is Christ. So I mentioned in the introduction that this passage gives us the fuel to fight the fear of man. This is the fuel to fight any sin in your life. Seeing the worth of Christ will compel us to flee sin. Seeing the value of Christ will cause us to fear God and not man. Seeing that Christ is the reward allows us to put everything else that he is entrusted with into proper order. You cannot hold on to both stuff and Christ. And it's only when you are holding securely to Christ that you can rightly hold on to everything else. If we do not steward that which God has entrusted to us for the glory of Christ and the advance of his kingdom, even what we have 
scriptures say in Matthew 13, 12, will be taken from us. So the death and resurrection of Christ is what is most valuable to this woman. It is where she has put her hope. It is where she has poured out her heart through the ointment on the head of Christ. The smell of her faith is from life to life. Does your life smell like Christ? Or does it smell like a body that has not been cleansed by the blood of Christ? The fragrance of Christ is not always enjoyed. We know this from the scriptures. For some, it will smell like death or waste, just as some of even the disciples and, and, and Judas do here in our text. But for others, when their soul gets a whiff of Christ, they experience his peace, comfort, joy, and salvation. Finally, we see in this woman's behavior that she did not care how people would respond to her devotion to Christ. She was not worried about how the disciples would respond or the other guests at the table. She only desired to honor Christ. There was not a moment that she thought she was wasting this perfume on Christ. She didn't flinch when she broke the jar that contained the perfume. She did not hold back a drop of perfume or save it for another situation. This was the situation for which every drop of that perfume was meant to display the worth of Christ and to proclaim his death as her death and his life as her life. Many of us live our Christian lives worried about what other Christians will think of us. We fear how our, how our walk with Christ will be viewed with others. Maybe we feel judged by other Christians for how we desire, according to our conscience, to honor the Lord with what he has called us to manage. The disciples saw the selling of this jar as a way to minister to the poor in a profound way. I ask, do we have texts that tell us to care for the poor in our midst? Yes, we do. Scriptures are full of them. Yes, we are to care for the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, almost verbatim in this language, that the poor would always be among you, and they're called to care for them. This is in Deuteronomy. This is holding up God's command to care for the, to care for the poor in our midst. The disciples were not misguided in their desire to minister to the poor. We cannot say that we are helping the poor, but, but here, here's where it changes in our text. Here's what Christ wants us to see. We cannot say that we are helping the poor while holding back Christ from them. But this, is all, but this also means that we are actually helping the poor, but, but this also means we need to be helping the poor that are in our midst. They go together. Valuing Christ and caring for those in need, they go together. That's the point Christ is making. It's only when we rightly acknowledge the value and the worth of Christ that we can rightly minister to the poor. So we cannot, this is not what Jesus is teaching, we cannot use this text to excuse our call to give to the poor. This is not what Christ is teaching. Christ is teaching that there is a priority in our love for others, though. We are not rightly loving the poor if we are not rightly loving God. And isn't this how we fulfill the law? We love God on account of our love for God, we love our neighbor. 
this woman has her priorities straight and the disciples have missed that Christ is supremely valuable even over the poor. Christ is not minimizing the need to minister to the poor or showing any partiality. He's putting, he is putting his worth and our obedience to his commands in the right order. We must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Let me leave you with a definition uh, that a previous pastor of mine uh, gave for love. Love is affectionately pursuing what is best for the object of my love. Let me say that one more time. Affectionately, this is the definition of love, affectionately pursuing what is best for the object of my love. I believe Jesus is teaching this in this passage. What is the best for the object of my love? Christ, first and foremost, every time. This is what the social gospel gets wrong. When we leave Christ out of our efforts to minister to the poor, you're not loving them the way that Christ calls us to love them. They must know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. They must know and see the work of Christ in your acts of service. If we feed them bread, but do not give them the bread of life, they will be hungry again. If they are not communing with Christ and drinking water from his well, they will be thirsty again. I had a desire to unpack the different types of anointing uh, in, in the scriptures, but that's going to wait for another time. I saw in one translation or version talking about this text as anointing of his kingship, but I think Jesus gives us the right interpretation here in verse 8 that this is for his burial. There are many types of anointing for fasting and kingly, priestly. There's all sorts of anointings, but Jesus tells us this was for his burial. So let me end with this which happens to be the second place in this text that Jesus' resurrection is alluded to. I mentioned that this woman, by emptying out her jar of perfume prior to his burial, was a display of her faith in the coming resurrection after he was put to death by the crowd. Jesus also proclaims his resurrection in verse 9. Do you see it? Look at verse 9. In response to this woman's actions with the ointment, he says... Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. There is no gospel to proclaim if the grave held Jesus. There is no gospel if Jesus does not rise from the dead. There is no good news if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. In fact, the irony of this passage is that as the chief priests are seeking for a way to kill Jesus, this had been the ordained means of God to bring salvation to the world and to display the worth and value of his son. While Judas and the chief priests are devaluing Christ, it is in their efforts to silence and devalue him that his true value is more clearly seen. So let me close with this. Which character in this Mark and Sandwich are you? Are you Judas? Clinging to Christ until you see the next best thing? Are you like Judas? Willing to sell your allegiance to Christ? 
Judas knew the chief priests were looking to kill Jesus. He went and found him and cut a deal. Are you ready, like, Jesus, uh, like Judas, to jump ship from following Christ when danger and your life is at risk? Or will you follow Jesus to the cross? Are you like the disciples who misprioritized Christ in their pursuit of righteousness? Are you obeying the commandments of God? Uh, the, are you obeying the commandments of God out of love for Christ? Are you compelled to obey the commands of Christ because Christ is your greatest treasure? Are you truly loving those God has put in your circle of influence? Are you not truly loving them, or you are not truly loving them, if you are not pointing them to Christ as you minister to them? Everyone's greatest need is Christ. Are you like the chief priests? Seeking to silence Christ, seeking to rid yourself of Christ. Maybe you're quenching the spirit and your conscience is being seared such that your sin is no longer sin in your eyes. Or you're beginning to justify your own sinful actions. It is clear in many states that our federal government and, uh, desires to silence the voice of Christ in our legislation and in our schools but just as the chief priests and leaders were trying just just as the chief priests and leaders were trying to do this to Christ in the gospels if they if this is you refuse to kiss the anointed son of god acknowledge your sin and repent and turn to Christ they will perish you will perish the gospel cannot be silenced the chief priests tried to silence Christ by killing him but death could not hold him and then finally, are you like the woman in, in our text? Pouring out your life for Christ. Displaying his value and worth above everything else that has been entrusted to you. Do you fear God over man? Are you willing to let everything in your life go for, for the surpassing worth of Christ? Do you believe there is no pleasure that sin can offer that will be more pleasing than knowing Christ more fully? And do you value your pursuit of Christ more than anything else in your life? Let's pray. Father, would you help us live a life of faith that is fully and completely devoted to you, such that if all was taken from us, we would still have everything in Christ. Father, through your spirit, through the work of your son, would we feel the weight of what this life ought to look like in light of this example that this woman gives to us in this passage? May we live in light of the resurrection and the hope that we have, this guaranteed inheritance that we have given to us in the Holy Spirit. Father, would you help us live bold lives for the gospel, Un unflinching to the threats of enemies of the gospel or even the sin that we're putting to death in our lives. Would you help us see those things and would you help us cling more to Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. Your benediction this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith 
and that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You're dismissed.